0: Hello and welcome to BJGP interviews. My name is Joan Lawson and I'm the editor of the BJGP. Joining me today are the three associate editors of the BJGP. We've got Sam Muriel, Thomas Round, and Nada Khan, who, of course, will be well known to listeners from her recent hosting of the podcast. So, we're going for a nice, relaxed episode today, and we're going to talk about the top 10 papers from 2022. But I think the first thing we need to flag before we go any further is that it's the 100th episode of BJGP interviews. And so um, that's why we've got us all together. And it seems quite apt that we actually celebrate some of the most popular papers and most, well, I mean, there's all sorts of different ways you can cut up the top 10 papers. This is particularly the most viewed papers. I think, according to the metrics on the website at bjgp.org. So they're the top 10 papers we've selected. We could pick others for their impact or other reasons, but that's how we've gone for these ones. So we're going to talk a little bit about them today and celebrate some of their tremendous research that we've been lucky enough to receive at the BJGP and uh, very happy to publish. Um, anybody, how is everybody? We'll just start with just going around and find out how everybody is, because we're just recording this just, I think it's reasonable to say, we're just recording this just after Christmas and New Year. I've still got my Christmas tree up.
1: Yeah, we've been all right. We've just got back from a nice long holiday, uh, back to work yesterday, kids are sick, typical holiday, <laughs> January type stuff, really, yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> um, Sam, Sam was just telling us you've got your relatives with you, so you're still you're still hosting and yeah. showing this. such like slight fatigue that any host might experience in those circumstances
2: <laughs> yeah cheers you and happy new year to everyone listening uh, it was big family christmas um yeah i got my folks still here who are having some grandson time which is very helpful for child care and school holidays uh, yeah, yeah. good to be good to be back behind the wheel
0: and uh tom the last we heard you were buried in general practice Strap A, uh, Well turbulence. yes
3: yes so happy new year, everyone it was a busy time I'm sure everyone's had a busy time over Christmas and New Year I was working between doing lots of lots of respiratory tract infections and I succumbed to a couple so I've had been coughing and virally for the past three weeks but uh, getting better.
0: Okay should we just get into some of these papers then because we've got quite a few to go through we um we'll provide links I think in the show notes won't we and we've got some little so that everybody can get to these if they want to explore them And I think there's lots here for policy and practice as well, in particular, and we can touch on some of the things that have happened in the past year. Who wants to go first? and get into their papers what should we go with nada shall i come to you you've you know several yeah. you looked after as associate editor
1: yeah the one that i wanted to highlight actually was the continuity of gp care for patients uh with dementia and this was a, a paper that came out of the saint leonard's research practice here in exeter and actually was highlighted quite a lot in policy and research over the past year um it It was a quite an impactful paper because it it looked at continuity of care in people with dementia and found that people who had the highest levels of continuity of care were less likely to develop delirium, less likely to develop incontinence, and almost ten percent less likely to have an emergency admission to hospital. And we've heard people talking about continuity and saying, you know if it was a pill we could prescribe it would be given out across the NHS with significant effects on patient outcomes. And I think this paper really, really highlights that.
0: Yeah, I think um, it's got, it has got mentioned. There's several of our continuity papers at the BJGP have been mentioned, particularly the hogni Sandvik one, Nor- the Norwegian one in recent times. But this one's been mentioned a lot as well. And it's worth emphasising those numbers were huge. I mean, you know, 35% less likely to develop delirium, 58% less likely to develop incontinence, those within the highest quartile for continuity of care. So really quite significant. Those are quite, you know, there's big, they're big numbers, you know, delirium, incontinence, emergency, and then nearly 10% for emergency admission So um I think we're going to see a lot more work around this, aren't we? In the in the I think that's probably this is a growth area um, for we hope that we'll be publishing lots of papers on this in the future as people look at continuity and think about um how it applies particularly to vulnerable groups. And maybe that's the way to go. I, I, I certainly know I've written about this in the briefings that uh, we clearly haven't got the resources to offer con- perfect continuity of care to everybody in the current system with the current manpower difficulties and the current pressure on the system but if we can find vulnerable groups where it makes a big difference that's going to be that's going to be the areas to concentrate on isn't it
1: yeah and i think that was highlighted by the authors who suggested that you know it's going to be difficult to have a big push on continuity across all groups but if there are Certain groups, such as dementia patients, who could specifically benefit from a targeted approach, to be prioritised. Then, this paper shows clearly the reasons why why we should do that. What are the papers you looked after, Nada? There's an interesting one about um, non-speculum sampling approaches for cervical cancer, which was a pragmatic randomised control trial that looked about looked at whether non-speculum doctor taking sampling and self sampling increased uptake for women um in older age groups and actually we're in the unique position here of having one of the authors of the paper here so tom knows all about this and perhaps can tell us a bit more (laughs) about
3: this paper it's great great to be involved with this paper both from um seeing it at at conception so i was involved right from the word go when we went for the grant Uh, and this was you know we know that cervical screening particularly in older women Um, can be painful particularly with the speculum um, and that is a barrier to some women taking part so we really designed this as a pragmatic RCT in primary care so it was great to demonstrate we can do that in in primary care where I work in northeast London in a deprived inner city multi-ethnic population where we have low uptake for cancer screening in general and in this trial, we offered women um, their randomised to three different approaches. So one approach was standard screening, and then we offered women the choice of either a clinician-taken sample or their self-sampling. And that's because it, recent evidence has shown that actually uh, a self-sampling approach can be just about as good as a speculum approach, um, as we we do HPV testing as the first off test. So that's really kind of the push, which is revolutionising potentially cervical screening. And we showed an increase, significant increase uptake. Interestingly, women from ethnic minorities preferred a clinician to take their sample rather than self-sampling. So I think this was highlighted also as a one of the research papers of the year by the British, uh, by the RCGP. And I think when we look at this going in the policy and practice implications, we're waiting for further trials from studies from you screen, but I would say the direction of travel will be offering women self-sampling as an option uh, in, in particular groups. And that will be, you know, removing that barrier of the speculum to some women who, who might find, find that painful and distressing. Also great for me to be a GP involved because I feel a bit de-skilled with survival screening as the nurses run it. So... Um, obviously, working with them and, and thinking about how we could implement this into practice and also being involved in, the, in an RCT was great.
1: And um, there wasn't, you know, th- this has been an area I think that's been picked up in a few papers in the BJGP. Alison Bravington and colleagues did a qualitative study about challenges of screening in women in older age groups. I just highlight that actually this can be quite a painful experience for postmenopausal women. So I think this Absolutely. paper shows why it's important to have options for for doing these these tests
0: okay uh, one thing that we touched on just at the beginning of the continuity of the care paper was about the stress and workload on gps this might be a good moment to bring you in sam because you looked after at least a couple of papers if not i think a couple of papers which were related to burnout and gp well-being yeah that we published
2: yeah indeed so certainly of interest in the, the current context facing us in primary care and the nhs at the moment um but yeah we had two systematic reviews that have featured in the, the top 10 papers from 2022. Um, So the first one to talk about was titled Prevalence of Burnout Amongst GPs, which was a a systematic review and meta-analysis by Christo Karuna and colleagues from the University of Melbourne. And this looked at published evidence prior to the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, looking at trying to estimate worldwide prevalence of burnout amongst GPs and family doctors, and um, look at some of the ways that was measured. And I guess not surprisingly, they found quite a lot of studies from a wide range of countries across 29 countries, 60 studies were included. The measures of burnout that were used varied between studies and between countries, but the consistent finding was that there was moderate to higher levels of GP burnout amongst the workload the workforce worldwide. I mean, obviously in places like the UK and Australia where primary care is well-established um, you know, we face particular pressures around um, meeting low demand in an ageing population in, in high-income countries with more complex medical conditions. But I guess in a lot of other countries, primary care is much less well-established, and it might be that there are far fewer um, primary care physicians or GPs per head of population who are also facing very high workloads for, for different reasons. But the, the message out of the, the review across the published literature up till the end of 2020 was that um, there is burnout. It is quite a significant issue, but it really varies a lot between regions. And and you know the authors sort of finished with suggesting that perhaps some kind of more consistent method of measuring this is needed to be able to make international comparisons about levels of, of burnout across different primary care workforces.
0: Uh, and what about um, what GP wellbeing during COVID?
2: Yeah, so I mean, obviously... It, the impact of the COVID 19 pandemic on healthcare professionals did get a lot of attention, particularly earlier on in the pandemic, and, and it's not gone away because COVID is still with us and still causing significant hospital admissions and presentations to general practice. So, another systematic review by Laura Jefferson and colleagues from the University of York who looked at studies focusing on GP well being during the COVID 19 pandemic, and this study included uh 31 in published papers and they really trying to i get an idea of the risk factors associated with uh, changes in gp psychological well-being and they really they identified a, a number of factors um, a lot of relating to preparedness of the uh, health system for a global pandemic facing a virus we'd never faced before so access to ppe Safe sort of practices to reduce exposure and risk of contracting or passing on COVID to other patients. Uh, Some of the studies that were included found um, higher levels of stress, burnout, mental illness, um, and even physical symptoms amongst GPs. And when they compared uh, impacts on gender and different ages within the GP workforce, it tended to be female GPs and older GPs that um, seemed to suffer more from the impact of the pandemic on them as as healthcare practitioners.
0: I just realized that uh, I think the um the January issue just got published didn't it? The uh, and with my editors briefing and I'm just because it just came through my door actually this like in the past couple of days and my briefing was about the worldwide kind of impacts and issues around burnout and I referenced quite heavily um there was a, a commonwealth study, the commonwealth fund uh, over in the US um, they had their 2022 International Health Policy Survey of Primary Care Physicians, and it made for pretty bleak reading across the world. Really, in terms of how primary care physicians were coping, and particularly how younger primary care physicians, the mountains that were suffering distress and the pandemic, and in generally and in general, um, I was just looking at the numbers again. Now, Netherlands and Switzerland came out lowest. Um, for um burnout rates only about sort of 13 percent of under age 55 in the Netherlands were um were likely to report burnout compared to the UK where it was 45 percent and um something like one in five of younger primary care physicians under 55 were talking about leaving the um stop seeing patients in the near future um, and we were the highest out of all the countries that were included which was a lot of countries in Europe USA Canada and actually for aged 55 and older it was 67% um, were st- planning to stop seeing patients in the near future overall about half across the, the country across the world so there just seems to be a global problem with i mean i know there's a global shortage of doctors but primary care and uh, now i've certainly seen reports on social media canada seems to be getting hammered there was an article in the Journal of the American Board of Family Medicine physicians I was just reading this week that was pointed to me, that there just seem to primary care seems to be disintegrating in the US as well. So, um, I, you know, we're we're often very high up on all these league tables in the UK, if not the top, we're in a lot of difficulty. But um, there's no safe haven if you're a primary care physician just now, is there?
2: Yeah, and I guess it just it you know, it emphasises a message that you know you're a GP out there listening to this please do take some measures to look after your well-being you know yeah, don't, yeah. don't wear yourself out and run yourself into the ground because you needed um and you know you will enjoy your job if you look after yourself as well
0: yeah yes absolutely yeah so I, I mean and it's we've got to try to change the system haven't we because clearly that's required but in the meantime and well and always accompanying that is um self-care is going to be tremendously important i fear that a lot of the people who are choosing to stop seeing patients in the future are making that exact decision though sam uh, the yeah. the self-care unfortunately revolves around not seeing patients because okay. of the way the systems are configured so that's uh we're, it doesn't feel like we're quite at the bottom of that
2: yet. it could get worse before it gets better yeah mm-hmm.
0: okay any other papers you looked after, Sam, that we should talk about, or there? Should...
2: Uh, there was one other. Um, there was a Dutch study looking at um, predictors for inappropriate proton pump inhibitor use.
0: Um,
2: so this was okay, right Go right one. back to the clinical then. <laughs> yeah, right <laughs> back to the clinical. So something yeah. to keep in mind is those patients who are on you know things like a for a long period of time, and and you know it's not without its risk of harm. And so this group of Dutch GPS led by Lika Maria Coggle, um, looked at an anonymized primary care data set, including almost 150,000 patients in 27 GP practices. And they looked at what were the indications for patients starting on PPIs, um, how long they were prescribed for, and what were the other medications they were on at the time. And the main finding was that more than half of the PPI prescriptions did not have an appropriate indication, according to the authors, assessments, um, lots of um, excess PPI use around ulcer prophylaxis. It seems like looking into the criteria about what these uh, authors considered to be inappropriate prescribing, they went quite strict criteria. I think it was based on Dutch guidance, which seems to be a bit stricter than what we practice here in the UK. Um, But they did find that a lot of patients were on PPI without a, a clear indication and for longer than than would be expected as well so courses of ppi for treating acute peptic ulcer disease went on for much longer than than guidelines would recommend in the netherlands uh, yeah they kind of looked at other factors that might um predict inappropriate prescribing so things like age and uh, body habitus and things like that Uh, but yeah really interesting sort of reconsidering because it feels like we're quite liberal here about trying to prevent GI bleeds and things using PPIs and, and, and complications from procedures and medications, but maybe with you know this study would suggest things that maybe swinging swinging a bit too far. Be interesting to see if it was replicated here in the UK. And
0: um, uh, yeah, I thought it, the numbers were really stark, weren't they? But high, and I think you're right that some of that is part of related to the guidance that they were using and that. But um, I think it's certainly something to consider, isn't it, for clinicians everywhere that PPIs and I and I, I think I did the podcast for this one. Myth, myth, Maria, and um, I seem to recall talking about the days when I was a junior doctor. You could only get a meprazole when the consultants were it was, it was consultant only, and only the ones allowed to prescribe a meprazole or Losec as it probably was in those days. Um, but now we seem to have, so we've come a long way in twenty. come a, We're in a very different position twenty-five years later. Mm. Um, than we were then. Interesting. So we've got got two more very clinical ones we should talk about. Um, And um, I can't remember who looked after who. I know you looked after the nice traffic light system
3: paper, Tom. I did, I did. Um, Actually, this this is really interesting how papers you first get rid of them. So I was actually at the RCGP annual conference a couple of years ago and um, amy clark is a medical student at uh, cardiff university presented this as a poster and i awarded it the best clinical research poster so i said please do submit to british Journal of general practice she did and it came up as one of our papers and one of our top 10 papers of the year which is great so well done to amy uh, as she did this as part of her bsc i think the integrated bsc in primary care so there you go what a great piece of work for a medical student hopefully we'll continue in doing an academic general practice piece of work. And this was um, a study looking at the accuracy of the NICE traffic light system in children presenting to general practice. Now, some of you may be aware of the traffic light system. It's around feverish children under five. It has criteria ranking kids into green, amber or red categories. However there's a lack of evidence to support the use in primary care and to the author's knowledge no studies have evaluated this traffic light system in UK general practice. So they uh, was a re- this was a retrospective, a retrospective study using a cohort of six over 6,000 children and applying the traffic light system and what was super interesting was they found it really didn't work in general practice. Um, so actually NICE guidance is not really related to primary care evidence and I think that's Um, really the fact that we have the the prevalence of serious illness in children is very low in general practice compared to other cohorts for example in A&E or acute paediatrics are the the, the predictive value for these sort of risk scoring systems it is very low in general practice so uh, in in an idea from using this scoring system they found that a third of children who were categorized in the red category would have been urgently referred to hospital Um, though using that red category uh, we would have missed 41 percent of children with serious illness. So there you go, it just shows that actually using these categories on their own are not that particularly helpful and I think it comes down to clinical intuition and clinical decision making. So it's really that gut feeling which we've there's quite a bit of research in kids along with cancer, gut feeling for an, an ill child, not just their observations. I think that's a key outcome measure there. Go yeah. with your gut feeling and clinical decision making.
2: Yeah, it was interesting. I guess not to sort of defend the nice thing, but just to take the counter view of the findings. So they I mean, they, they did find that if you looked at red and amber, it was highly sensitive for severe illness, so, but yes. you know, very poorly specific. So you're going to catch the kids that are ill. You're just going to swamp services exactly. with all the not ill kids. And I guess I was thinking about that in terms of, well, you know, I always, you know, you always say to parents, you know, we'd rather you come in and let us check your kid rather than just sort of sit on this thing if you're worried about them at all. And I kind of thought, well, you know, in one sense, that's catching all the sick kids, which is what you want to do. You don't want to miss that, that child with sepsis or meningitis that presents, you know, in a kind of a bit of an unclear way. But obviously you can't sustain a system where you're just sending loads of kids in for further assessment that are actually unwell. And it, it's just that balance of, yeah, picking them up but not overloading the system. And, and maybe there's a better way to sort of get that balance right. Yeah.
3: So I think it's, it's taking, you know, it's got its maybe usefulness the nice guideline and recognising where children we need to do more in-depth assessment but it comes down to clinical decision making and your acumen as as, as a clinician for when sent for, for for serious illness i think that's the key the key the key, the key bit there and probably so, more research to help us with clinical decision making tools
0: yeah i mean the specificity was one percent wasn't it if you included red and amber so it was absolutely miserable as a you know yeah. but I, I, but again to, to give the counterpoint i think the nice traffic light system does make some allowance for clinical clinical judgment there is a section in there isn't there so you're allowed to exercise your judgment in that regard so it kind of but it does go to another thing i think is a kind of a side benefit of that nice traffic light system is i think it has over the last 20 years completely changed how gps go about systematically monitoring children's vital signs which i don't which I mean, which seems to me has been a very which, which I feel has been a good thing, though, you know, be wary of the evidence in terms of actually particularly when it comes to monitoring for deterioration of kids and particularly people working part time. If you've got pulse, respirate, cat refill, all those are recorded in the notes. It makes a huge difference when it comes to reassessing children. And that's not captured in this paper at all, of course. Yeah, um, But I do think that is one of the things that, that the, the nice traffic light system probably changed significantly how we practised. My my feeling is I'm no evidence to back this up, but that's probably a good thing. Um, though um again, this paper is the absolute exemplar of showing that you mustn't make assumptions about things being good things, because there, there may perhaps be significant wrinkles when you actually start to do research yeah. into them. And so this this was a brilliant example. And very I'd say it's unusual for we're we certainly encouraged, it, but it's unusual for a medical student project to to um to, Great
3: work from to, Amy and her. Yeah, I should, absolutely comments.
0: superb. Um, and you know, as I say, top ten as well, and deservedly so because it was really quite a, it was really quite an eye opener, wasn't it? Yeah. Thank
3: you. Uh, um, and yeah, I, I had hmm. another paper as well, which was. Um, uh, as No association between breast pain and breast cancer: a prospective study of over ten thousand women. So this is again a really interesting area. I do a bit of cancer research. So um, we have no, we we know that uh, referrals to two week wait in general have, have, have more than doubled over the past ten years, and particularly in breast, they've been going up um, at more than ten percent a year. So there's over seven hundred thousand referrals to what we call the one stop breast clinics for symptoms, um, and there's real interest about could we use that. That capacity in a better way. We can't maybe keep on referring more and more patients. Yeah, certainly breast lumps we should refer in, but what about breast pain? So this was the largest cohort study in this area. It looked at over ten thousand women referred into secondary care from primary care, and looked at their symptoms. And they found that um, just under two thousand were referred with breast pain, and there was no significant increased risk of breast cancer. So I think this is supporting other previous evidence. So this is the largest cohort study in this area. So uh, reinforcing the view that if a woman just has breast pain on on their own without any other symptoms, without any lumps or any other changes in the breast, you could be reassured that their risk of cancer is no higher than the general population and they may not need to be two-week referred. Now there's this potential um, uh, work into thinking about cl- non-two-week weight clinics for breast pain, advice and guidance services. So ways that we might utilise the finite capacity we have in the NHS in in a better way.
1: It's reassuring for clinicians but I think it's also a point to take that we can use these sorts of findings to reassure patients as well because women are scared about breast cancer and I can understand how breast pain might be very alarming for a woman and studies like this can just help us reassure our patients to say actually breast pain alone probably isn't going to isn't going to be an indication of breast cancer, and we can explore other ways of managing this. But yeah, so so what did they say in in the podcast recording you and that? Well,
0: Ashu was great. He was yeah. he's a, he's the breast surgeon, and he was and I recommend going back to the podcast and the video. And he was really I, I think the the thing to emphasise here is it's breast pain alone, and yes. there's there's a secondary issue. But beyond what Ashu said was that this about how the media pick up research papers as well, because this one did get picked up by the media, and I think it was the Express. Published something from a well known celebrity who had had breast cancer, poo pooing it because they'd had breast pain and turned out to have breast cancer. Actually, as soon as you read to the, um, now, of course, it's entirely possible women, it is possible for women to have breast pain and have breast cancer. It's just there's no more risk than if they were being screened in the general population. As it turned out, this celebrity clearly then stated they'd had a lump as well so they weren't breast pain alone at all so had completely so the the findings of the paper got misrepresented and i think that's a common problem we see with anything that we um that we publish and we're very mindful of that when papers get press released and how they can be um misinterpreted and i think ashu's point about this was that um it's not that we're not going to do anything as you've just alluded to there as well nada it's not that we'll do nothing about breast pain it's just they don't necessarily need to go to the um a breast suspected breast cancer one-stop breast clinic in the same way they still need managing and of course the other thing to be certain of is we have to be certain it's breast pain alone and that maybe won't be possible without it actually at least being examined speaking to a clinician in some shape or form to make sure there isn't a lump that's been missed Or some other concern but as you suggested overall it's reassuring and an important finding but it doesn't mean that you know if if a woman turns up with breast pain and this was never said in the paper and we were very careful about this in all of the social media and everything we put out it was never to dismiss breast pain as being unimportant it was to understand the very specific context that if breast pain presents alone with nothing else we were in a strong position to start reassuring women. And Ashley pointed out as well, it was he was very careful and very generous to make sure he, to point out that it wasn't about putting the blame on primary care for referring these women either and that it should immediately stop it. It was also about that breast, the people, the surgeons running uh, in charge of the clinics also didn't over investigate people who had breast pain alone. And actually, they said you got breast pain alone. The risk is, you know, no, no different than it would be if you were just um, in the general population. And so, therefore, we're not going to, you know, we don't need to over-investigate. So, there was also a message there for secondary care.
3: I, I, I would say also, you know, the tubular pathway has been successful with breast cancer. You know, we have improved um, um, stage of diagnosis and, and outcomes for, for women. Um, we know that there is a... Women from ethnic minority groups may be less likely to attend with breast lumps, so there is work to be done on that in that area. But I, I totally think, yeah, agree. We can reassure women um, with breast pain on its own without other symptoms. So we shouldn't it still need a clinical assessment to make sure there's nothing there? But if it's just pain on its own with no lumps, we could think about managing uh, their pain. And in our local area, they've set up a breast pain service. Separate to the two-week wait service, so I think it really this it shows the also the practical implications of of, of this re- research and other research that we talked about today about changing clinical practice in the NHS.
0: Now that's really interesting. They've got a service set up already, Tom, in your area. Yeah. Um, yes, there's lots come out of this paper. It's a really um, it, it just it just, uh, you know, there was lots of different nuances to this. So there's a really interesting paper, really clinically important but actually raised lots of different issues, and and not least the you know the societal anxiety about breast cancer, understandable anxiety about breast cancer, um, and actually the enormous challenge as demonstrator in the press that who were, were hell bent on just kind of keeping the anxiety at a fever pitch. That actually, you know, we must still remain anxious about breast pain. It was really the message from the media, and um, of course we're all going to be extremely vigilant and extremely careful. We don't nobody wants to miss any cancers at all but equally overdiagnosis and over-investigation is a problem um, and um, a challenge where we're always going to have to balance it. So really interesting one. Um, what we've got left, what papers? We must, we've been through most of them. We've got two or three left.
1: Yeah, we've got the, the, there was one paper that came out of Bristol looking at the rise in prescribing for anxiety in UK primary care. So this was Charlotte Archer and her team. Good good time to mention anxiety then. Yeah, exactly. Um, So this was a paper that looked at trends in prescribing for anxiety in UK primary care from 2003 to 2018 and looked at antidepressant drugs alongside the anxiolytics as well. And I think the premise of this paper was really to challenge where does prescribing for anxiety come into play in practice, because NICE guidelines say prescribe at step three after psychological therapy. But this paper looks at the data of what's happening in practice and showed that prescribing of any anxiolytic increased over the study period, and most notably in young adults. And, And it also raises the question of, is this just better detection or more prescribing challenges us to think about what we're doing on the ground in this area
0: um and you know one of the things that stuck out for me is there's a marked rise in benzo prescribing in that group of young adults as well this paper showed which would be and and still it's back to 2017 but i don't think it's changed large numbers beyond four weeks that's normally 28 days that's recommended as well yeah so interesting one um and I, it's one of those papers that perhaps there's isn't an immediate um clinical message to send out. But it's obviously an important point. It's really important when it comes to actually trying to work out what's going on with just this rising trend. You see the graphs, rising trend of kind of any anxiolytic and antidepressant prescribing that's going on. Um, So I think we'll go down to the last couple of papers.
3: There's two we could take them together. So why do GPs rarely do video consultations, which was a qualitative study. And then there's also a qualitative study on the unintended consequences of online consultations. So if I take the... um, video consultations one first. That's a study from Trish Greenhalge and college at at Oxford. And this was a focus group study, um, thinking about like, why do, why do GPs rarely use, I mean, I rarely do video consultations. Um, And it was, their findings were, it was interesting, were were either video consultations were either never adopted or soon abandoned general practice despite a policy push, uh, with the advantage of videos perceived as minimal for most of general practice. Um, and it was felt that like maybe the telephone or in-person was was much better than video consultations. Um, so it was really about the sort of thinking about the push to in, in, implement them into general practice has relatively little advantage. And I think that's been, I found that in my own practice, I kind of found them a little like novelty initially. But then I've rarely utilized them, only in specific cases where maybe I had a young child who the parent couldn't come in. We thought it might be a good idea to do a video, a video consultation, but I've gone back to triaging and majority face-to-face consultations. I think there's a lot to be, to be said for that. I don't know about you guys in your own practice.
0: I just think that the paper does a very good job of kind of highlighting some of those. and And there's... I think I remember speaking to Trish about this and the, I think the point was it wasn't about just saying online uh, remote consultations because actually we have to be a little bit careful because the definition of online consultations mm. is different in this, the other paper that we're talking about here as well. These video remote consultations, there was, there was a set, there was a, a, a in box two on the paper, there was counter examples as they called them where videos did add value. And actually Tom, one of them was just where out of hours care where people particularly could use um, you could use the video to eyeball children yeah. was the phrase that's used in specific specifically and uh, nursing homes came up um some emergency assessment of very unwell patients talking patients through self-exam uh some patients with mental health illness and concerns as well where it might be useful and less experienced clinicians you'd obviously don't fall into that category as well but there were some um so there were some examples where it's used, but I, my feeling is it's sometimes hard to go that actually, you, what you get from video consultation isn't that isn't that much more than telephone consultation. You know, in in the cases where a video consultation will do a telephone, and it's much it's generally a lot easier to do a telephone consultation in terms logistically.
1: Yeah, and th- and then this other paper that looking uh, the last paper that looked at unintended consequences of online consultations uh, from a group uh, from Andrew Turner who's in Bristol we're looking at things like e-consults and how those are used in practice. And interestingly found that it, it, it was difficult for some patients. So patients didn't like this asynchronous communication. So sending something in, not really sure when a GP or if it was even a GP responding. And found that for some disadvantaged groups, they were actually excluded from accessing these services. So it's just important to think, a bit about digital uh, services offered by practices might not actually be being used in the way that we we think it is and might actually have unintended consequences for patients.
0: Yeah, the definition here was much more about those kind of asynchronous, like email, messaging, other things like that, wasn't it? The online consultations they were talking about rather than video and remote consultations. I think if your practice offers any of them or you're interested in looking at this, then the paper's really good because it does just flag some of the difficulties and the challenges of doing them i um, mean interestingly i'm just rereading a cal newport book a world without email at the moment and she talks a lot about the dis- email make there's a incredible evidence about email making people miserable and you know how harmful <laughs> it is and how it damages interactions in many ways and know it facilitates in some other ways as well I'm, as i'm reading it i've also been thinking cracky just some of that stuff when you do it with patience, you then the harms get magnified uh, particularly And I think I wonder if some of those unintended consequences of online consultations are those manifestations of something which has made our life email, which is now completely victitious, has made our in many ways made our life poorer. Mm -hmm. I thoroughly recommend Cal Newport's book, A World Without Email, as a general Mm -hmm. read, though, as well. I'm not realistically thinking we're all going to stop doing it, but there's some really good stuff there about actually thinking Um, about what on earth it is we're doing.
3: Yeah. I may be more positive about online consultation. I think it's a, I think it's a mixed, I think it's, a total, you know, this is a qualitative study. I think it's a mixed picture because in some ways it does, um, for working age adults, you know, it does bias, of course, to people who are digitally tech savvy, uh, working age people. But for them, uh, I have found we've, we've moved over to a different provider of online consultations. So there are a number of them out there, a number of companies in this area. Um, but we have found it has potentially increased access for certain groups of patients and they can be very efficient to deal with Uh, particularly if you send patients sending photos they send an accurate history so it's getting that sort of preemptive history to you and it can flag up like do I need to see this person a helpful triage tool so I think it's really dependent on the how the practice implements it into practice I would say also um, I don't think it should be the only route into general practice so I think it's very you know this uh, study and other studies show we should uh, have multiple routes into general practice some people cannot use these to, to, um who maybe older patients learning difficulties etc we need to have different other routes for them into general practice
0: yeah the yeah. um and the paper in box one i think is you know offers the you know it points out the unintended consequences but then it offers the way you can go about mitigating some of the those unintended consequences as you described tom that there are ways yeah. to manage it and think about it and so i don't think we're going to stop doing it of course and i think it's got its role but actually just w- watching out for the kind of things where it could cause problems and and mm. um, just not and just paying attention to it is going to be really important
2: yeah it's been a really interesting moving practices this year going from a practice that did not engage with um, this kind of thing at all to a practice that uses it so you get multiple e-consults a day to triage sort of requests and um, I think it it's interesting one of those unintended consequences was inadvertently prioritizing online consultation. So if someone can actually submit an e-consult rather than sit on the phone for an hour, they might actually get through to us quicker and then get the appointment they need or the the issue sorted. And then I do, yeah, worry about the the exclusion of patients who are not um, yeah. confident with digital technologies that are relying on traditional methods that are becoming less available because we need to devote some time to this, but also be, just because we're swamped.
0: I, compl- I and it's, exactly, it's exactly how I feel in the Chinese restaurant, um, Sam, that when you go into order and then you're waiting in the queue and then the person who rings up gets answered, gets their order taken before you. Uh, ne- that never fails to drive me demented. <laughs> I think it's exactly the same thing, isn't it? It's just yeah. that basically it's kind of a form of you jumping in that regard. It's easy <laughs> to kind of <laughs> prioritise the technology. Yeah. <laughs> so mm-hmm. i thought i'd finish with a nice serious example there of exactly how that works i think that's all <laughs> the top 10 isn't it I could, you know you know they, they cover the breadth of general practice and some of the challenges we're facing
3: yeah really interesting diverse you know going from what uh, our roles as gps our stress and burnout how we develop how we deliver general practice and then the real clinical papers as well so i think a really good mix of, of papers and so thanks everyone for um, downloading them and having a look Yeah, many
0: thanks to our peer reviewers as well over this pack in 2022. They've done a phenomenal job of supporting us in helping um, work out which papers to take forward and then improving the quality, a significant degree of the ones we have had as well. So we're very grateful to them. Um, I think that that rounds us off. I'm going to finish off just like, what would you, so I guess, what would you like to see more of? Let's finish off with a a slightly different question to the end. What would we like to see more of in 2023 in terms of GP research? What are the priority areas? we'd like to be covering in the BJGP. I've sprung this on you guys, so you've got no, absolutely no chance to prepare it whatsoever. What do you reckon?
1: I think I'd like to see more patient perspective in the papers. Um, I know we've talked about it a few times, Ewan, but I think that um, I'd just like to see a bit more of what patients feel and think about the research findings, and I think that would be a great thing to incorporate into some of our papers um we we can't have a top down approach to research, and we work with our patients every day, so we need to consider that in how we're implementing our research findings as well and what we think is right isn't always what patients think is right, and I think we need to keep that at the forefront of our mind,
0: yeah, that's a really good one,
1: and the thing is
0: it's obviously we it's a slightly facetious question because um uh, we can never we we never get to mandate what gets sent to us anyway mm. in that regard or what we're likely to to receive but that that is something we can potentially uh, do something about so it's a really important one in fact encouraging authors to tilt their papers well uh, if they're at the very early stages making sure that there's genuine and genuine and rather than tokenistic patient um involvement at the various very earliest stages we thoroughly welcome that and we'll keep our eye out for it in papers and hopefully we'll be able to prioritize those ones Mm. um i'm not sure we can add too much to that but sam tom have you got any other further comments
2: uh, yeah, I'd love to see some different methodologies of primary care research come under our noses. So, you yeah, know, we have some really strong qualitative researchers in primary care out there. We have some great um studies of large anonymized routine data sets that are very useful for insights and some of those papers have been in the top 10. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see some health economics in primary care come our way you know it's not something we see every day it's obviously got to have clear messages for practitioners in in primary Mm -hmm. care but if you're out there you're a health economist or a trialist or you know some of these papers that we don't see as often we'd love to see them if if your study has relevance to primary care please do consider the BJGP.
0: Yeah, we know the difficulties of doing um, RCTs in primary care. So I, I'll come to Tom now, who's the co-author I of an RCT, co-author of RCT in primary and care it, that and published not, this
3: year. And it's not easy, and I agree, but it, it's just shows like you can do it, even you know, I work in a deprived in a you know, multi-ethnic area in London, and we were able to do an RCT. So I would I push people to say we would like to see more trials. I agree with Sam as well. More trials, more um, health economics. We, we, primary care is really good at doing the large database research, and you know, that's been a fantastic track for us and it has changed policy and practice but you know more trials i think would be a would be a really good thing i also have a little um pet thing that i probably maybe i should do some research in it myself you know there's a big explosion during covid of using text messaging tools and using those for both as an interactive tool in near real time and also safety netting so i think there's a lot of scope potentially for more research into that how we utilize text messaging and other tools in general practice
0: yeah great and I, I haven't, so my only thoughts are I'd like to see papers of anything which just try to get to the people who don't attend general practice or the kind of the hidden populations who are, because it's all too easy to do the things that are in front of our noses clinically, the people who do turn up and those hidden populations, the hidden needs, the kind of those vulnerable populations who don't necessarily appear. And sometimes they don't, those large database studies, sometimes they they are they're, they're, they can be absent in them as well for that reason, because they're not actually attending primary care. Um, that's a difficult one for us to control, but I certainly think that that's um, that'd be that'd be a great area to see more of as well.
3: I agree with that. And in inequalities, you know, we talked about last year about the inverse mm. care law fifty years, but we need to really have that on the back of our minds all the time about inequalities and marginalised populations. Yeah.
0: Listen, um, I think we'll stop there. Has anybody got any other final thoughts? Um, otherwise, I think we'll just let, it remains to um, thank you all for your your work and our team as well at the BJGP. We should take the moment, this moment now as well. Erica in particular looks after the website as well. This is the 100th podcast, but everyone else, um, Catherine, head of publishing at the RCGP and all the rest of the team. Um, we are going to say thank you very much. We'll wish you the best for 2023. We wish the best to all our listeners for 2023. And we look forward to um, meeting up and speaking and engaging and doing good work in the, in the year to come. Thank you very much. Thank you.